0: A plus for Dave again, on time. Student has his shirt prepared.
1: Yeah, real shirts, real shirts.
0: Uh, today might be an F in terms of preparation, but we'll see. Maybe oh uh,
1: no, <laughs> I I didn't prepare shit today. I barely read anything, so it's a point.
0: Playing too much mech Warrior. I. Th-
1: that's ex- that's exactly what happened. Playing <laughs> too much mech Warrior. This is your fault. If you hadn't enabled me by getting me a better <laughs> computer, I would have been more prepared for this podcast. Where are these guys?
0: It's already more than five minutes in. You
1: gotta, time. you gotta start some sort of like swear jar incentive system for this.
0: <laughs> swear jar, I'm yeah. We're gonna, gonna like do. A, oh, yeah, wow, they speaker. came, they came at the same time.
2: Oh, look at that! Look at these two. Yo, yo, yo! Oh, what happened? I think What's I beat Jangan by two seconds. But uh no complex. he might want to when you sell this podcast for a hundred million, I get I get a twenty I, I get at least a quarter. Oh
0: yeah, actually
2: well, I, no,
1: that's a good point. how much of this do we do we own, Alex? How much of of your, of your podcast do we
0: each well, get? If, we split, if we split everything evenly we get all even equity, obviously. Yeah. So it's fine. As long as we contribute evenly, it's all fine. Okay.
2: I, I just need to let you know that for some reason, Alex, you're f- your face is frozen in the smirkiest, sneakiest Vietnamese man trying to take my money smile. As you said that, it was like as long as you say. Did you just
0: take a picture of my smirky face? I think so,
2: for posterity's sake. I
0: heard, I heard, I heard a like pervy yeah. click sound. Yeah.
1: Who was saying that? Wasn't someone saying that about the iPhones in Japan that they have to have. Oh,
0: yes, correct. That you
1: can't it's turn on. off. To, can't, yeah, it's impossible.
0: To yeah, you can't. Yeah, it's impossible. So many perfs.
1: Yeah, was that Andrew saying that? Was that you? Who was that?
0: No, I, this is. Um, I remember hearing this somewhere from somewhere else.
2: Oh, okay. I thought we talked about it. Yeah, but uh, that's why Android sells so well. <laughs> um, so smart.
0: Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the fourth episode of the LLB podcast, Low Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trending topics with our usual host, man of the high ground, Dave Chang. Hola. Jangan, the information man pa, 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 and pow. super connector. He's busy. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. And Andrew G., the master debator. Yeah, except it's
1: like quad of five G's. Is that a uh is that a Chinese mobile joke? Yeah.
0: His pronoun is uh, five G's. <laughs> yes.
2: That's right. Uh, I'm all no. about
1: that connectivity.
2: <laughs> oh about that sweet, sweet CCP money. That's right. chang Did you hear the news that uh, the Malaysian government is uh, introducing uh, digital currency? It just came out this morning. No, I, I didn't see that. that. No, uh, no one's Is that your segue into the tech? So I just read the headline news like an hour ago, but apparently the the central banks of Malaysia, Singapore, Australia, South Africa, I'm not sure how South Africa fits into this whole picture, but they are in as well, (laughs) uh, going to start trading in digital currency. Um, Seems like an awesome... Central banks. Central banks. So basically interbank transfers between central banks moving towards DC. Are you guys familiar with digital currencies? Maybe just for the sake of the audience, just
1: explain it just so everyone sure. knows what
2: so, so, so if you think about like crypto moving towards more decentralization and nobody owning the currency itself, but it being a blockchain-based ledger that you can see every transaction that happens with that currency. Digital currency is a dream that if you could theoretically trace every cent Uh, to its origin and its complete flow, right? So imagine if every drop in the ocean you could account for within a ledger, you could know uh, how it passes from a farmer to FMCG services company to a lawyer's uh, firm and how it it circles within the economy. So that's digital currency. Every dollar accounted for in a ledger. Um, And so China launched the first version of, of what a central bank digital currency does and the rest of the world is trying to figure out what the right step is a bit a bit cautiously because you don't want to rush head first and then have like 200 different digital currencies. Um, and there there has been some conversations that banks will get together and form like these group alliances. I was not expecting this weird. Uh, kind of tiny countries come together alliance, which is kind of interesting. But, you know, Australia, 30 million population, Malaysia, 30 million population, Singapore, 5 billion. South Africa, I'm not sure, but, you know, not exactly the strongest GDP per capita country around. Um, But yeah, they're combining together to form some sort of centralized digital country for interbank settlements.
1: I mean, so how does this work then? So basically all uh, four or five countries are going to use one
2: currency that they're going to
1: pay to their current. Value of their currency, like what? What are the mechanics of it? I I
2: literally read the headline news. so I can't tell okay. you how this works. Okay. Uh, my guess is that it's going to be some sort of um automation of this settlement process itself using some kind of currency pair system, right? So right now, what happens is banks have to settle that over T plus three days or yeah. T plus four days. By having it on some kind of automated ledger, you just have like instantaneous transfers, which theoretically then helps businesses um, you know, we're, solve well, things okay, but, faster. I mean, not to be
1: pedantic or get bogged onto a semantics argument, but just so I'm clear from my understanding. So essentially what we're talking about is you want to move the entire process to the blockchain, which is different yeah. than rolling out like a digital currency, right? Correct, correct. Well, it goes hand in hand, though. No, no not, but they don't go. They don't go hand in hand, though, because a distributed ledger okay. is, as Andrew explained, right. It's where basically every transaction is or every
0: uh, oh yeah, so, so interaction the ex- is the existing currency. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: recorded permanently yeah. on the ledger and it's immutable, right? Yeah, which is so. I think a lot of times when we talk about the space. Uh, blockchain and and digital currencies—they're sometimes used interchangeably. But again, just for like my own well, understanding, I want to be sure that we're talking about.
0: Can, can you launch a digital currency with off the, without a blockchain? That's my point.
2: All right, so so I'm I'm just I'm just gonna read the the first two chapters of this so you guys, uh, like okay. you guys get a feel of this. So, um, so central banks in Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, South Africa will conduct a cross-border payments trial. Did I freeze? You, you're you're a bit leggy.
1: I mean, it's okay. It's not it's not bad. You're still like moving you know. around, but you're choppy.
2: Oh God damn it! Yeah, I, I'm I'm working directly with YTL to solve these issues, guys. It's not the best broadband. So, yeah. yeah, how's that going? They've turned it off and on again a couple of times. All right, sorry guys, I, I froze there for a bit. I don't
1: know.
2: Um, where where? Did, so okay, long story short, some central bank digital currencies are for retail focus, like trying to replicate cash in circulation. Where, whereas, like, other banks are being a bit more careful and, and looking at wholesale, um, like, to to basically, cash stays cash, but the internal workings of the bank, transfers within the banks move towards this digital ledger, right? And so, as a consumer, when you take it out of the bank, you know, you just, you for you, there's no difference. Yeah. But when banks are doing their daily settlements with the central banks, when they're, like, buying, uh, uh, you know, GCs and selling them off, then you're getting... Uh, You're doing that on a digital ledger right so i think that the trial that's happening now within these five four or five countries is basically that inner working side first before moving towards the chinese side of things um i don't know how exciting it is i think it's exciting in the sense that it will allow as a consumer settlements to become faster and theoretically like a faster movement of capital and trade right
3: one question one question that people people have been asking is that um, what will happen to all these different countries if the U.S. Uh, Fed starts tapering? If the U.S. Fed does what? Tapering? Starts tapering the interest rates? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I think um, I think one argument, because I, I've been following what's going on yeah. in China, right? Um, so the, the digital currency has been tried mm. out uh, across, I don't know, dozens of cities, right? I mean, a few million people have been using that, um, and uh, and a few major platforms have been accepting that. So, so a key argument is that, um, is, I mean, a few things I mean first i mean some people are saying that okay it's going to challenge the us dollars but i don't think that's the mm-hmm. case um the, the use is probably mm-hmm. more domestic um but but, but if, if you think about a government which tries to solve all these problems without knowing what the problems really are and now with the digital currency um theoretically they could channel money you know in in a much more straightforward way um of course i mean if you look at their, their, uh, the there at the their announcements and um, the speeches by researchers from People's Bank of China, they kept saying that no, we're not going to do away with the banks. We are still rely on banks to distribute the digital currency. We still rely on banks because the banks have the fear that if the government can have direct access to people's wallets, then then why do we need all these different layers of um, of intermediaries to to handle mm. transactions? So, so 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 that's a scare. Um, and, and exactly how that will evolve, uh, we don't know. But if you think about um, um, the, the effort that China does to, to ban Bitcoin mining and all these activities, it's probably they're, them trying to control this, right? I mean, um, because Bitcoin transcends cross borders, and uh, you know that is something that you can't control. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and what they do with things that they, they can't control, yeah. so they ban it.
2: Yeah. I'll quickly this...
1: it
3: get... Sorry, Dave, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, my just quick point is like, it was always my understanding that the digital currency rollout in China is basically the control of capital outflows, right? That they're trying to basically make sure that people who have Mm. money in the PRC don't get it out. And also, uh, I've read that this was last year that China is also rolling out, um, global taxation, regardless of, um, Residents, so basically mirroring oh, US, like the U.S. Mirror the U.S. models. The U.S. for those of you who don't, yeah. we don't know is the only country that does taxation based off citizenship or residency uh, or your PR
2: status, essentially, right? So not, not the only. There's a couple. I think Australia does the same thing as well.
1: Uh, are you sure? I think it's only the U.S. Okay, no. for okay. Let me let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. So because we should we should yeah we no should differentiate worry, between no you're right let me differentiate between income tax. Versus capital, uh, capital gains tax, right? So, know, so several countries are right do to income tax, global income tax taxation, yep. regardless yep. of where you actually live. However, it's my understanding that America is the only country that has global taxation with both uh, earned income and capital gains tax. And it's unless that-
2: you do not have a tax treaty with the U.S., as a Malaysian citizen, shout out to anyone. From a country that doesn't have a tax treaty with with the U.S., you get to buy stuff without capital gains tax, which is incredible, right? So well, assuming your country but, doesn't have capital gains. Yeah, assuming your country doesn't. Yeah, have so capital Yes, assuming gains your country doesn't yeah, have Malaysia, capital gains. Malaysia, Singapore, like, they don't have. So, yeah. so like if you're in Malaysia and Singapore, you're in this incredible loophole that allows you to buy these tech stocks in the U.S. So the catch is, you do have to pay 30% dividend withholding tax, which really sucks. Uh, but then just buy tech stocks that don't pay you yeah, dividends. Yeah,
1: yeah which buy is basically tech all tech stocks. Like every tech stock doesn't pay dividends, right? I mean,
2: my portfolio yeah. is like I, I don't know. Like I, I may regret this five years from now, but right now it's ninety percent tech, probably. Um, no, you won't regret it. <laughs> no, you won't. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like I'm doing. I just I buy the stuff I know, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So just to just to like loop back on the central uh, bank digital currency. Sorry, Alex. I know we have topics, but just like it seems kind of exciting. This, um, the reason why banks uh, push for central bank digital currency is this idea that if you know where flows are happening, number one, you get to prevent wrongdoing, whether that's corruption or uh, you know any sort of illegal activity using uh, currency. And the second reason is you get to deploy capital better to um, individuals that need it. Right, so if you want to give cash to people that are poor, you actually know how much. Like, if you have a ledger that knows exactly how much money they have, uh, how much they've been spending, whether they've been spending it well, and not buying, say, alcohol and like the things that you don't approve of, it gives you this this ridiculous uh, big brother control of giving money to people that actually deserve it. Right, Um, and that's like an incredible story if it's done right. And and if you think about the Chinese government, it's a reflection of how. They've treated IP packets, right? The fact that you can see how information flows and then determine whether or not that information is, is being used justifiably within the values that they've set about as a, as a national system. And they're doing the same thing now with corporations as well, right? So it, it's a follow-on from that. Theoretically, what they're able to do then is also expand their sphere of influence using that digital currency. Meaning like if you give a, a loan to Sri Lanka for $4 billion port or a new, you know, industrial facility, you can then tag along that aid to that government with specific conditions and determine whether those conditions uh, feedback into the values of what they consider to be uh, a legitimate partner to, ch- to the Chinese government right so i think i think the chinese government uses it more as a tool first for for domestic control but secondly and i theorize that they will use this as a tool for for their domination a, and in expansion of spheres of influence right um i think the counter, and and so to to Jianghan's point about like will the the us dollar get replaced i do think there is a point that's going to happen where there's going to be a basket of currencies led presumably by the renminbi that will eventually replace the dominance of the u.s dollar and it won't come in the form that we know of it because you know a lot of these systems that we take for granted they haven't existed for that long 1973 Bretton Woods before that you know like the gold standard was replaced maybe 30 40 years before that so there's a revolution happening within the next 10-15 years of our life and I think digital currencies will play a role there I'm not exactly sure of the form it will um, but um, but just if, if anybody wants to dive deep into this topic there's this guy B- balaji Srinivasan has a uh, article on india stack and how india is building an alternative like third uh, third route stack towards central bank control currencies and it's a very interesting perspective of how the f- free movement of of currencies could build off of cryptocurrencies without governance from a, a body like a government
1: but that's actually just just a, uh, one question though i don't think there will be i i can't envision a world where the ccp would ever give up control of their currency right like no yeah. it's sort of like embedded into the the bargain is that it's a digital currency name but it's still going to be controlled by a centralized party i just i just i, I oh, yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just, I can't i can't picture that ever happening <laughs>
1: you know it's, 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 it's...
2: but but you know what they could do with it and so like this is one of Balaji's things right he's like The India stack that has been built without crypto, UPI's payment networks and other for like verified credentials can be the system that plugs into the global cryptocurrency system. So, for example, Anderson Horowitz's first investment in Southeast Asia was uh, the creators of a game. Axie Infinity that allows yeah. you to to like work part time and mine crypto right it's crazy like the yeah. first investment A16C yeah. desk in Southeast Asia happens to be a crypto investment and if you think about what that means like India is probably poised to be a recipient of non-central Controlled currencies, right? Like, you know, like if you work uh, part time as a freelancer in India doing IT work or customer service, could you get paid with Bitcoin, Ether, and other things, right? Could you then translate that into currency that you can use to buy on Flipkart, right? So there is a, a sort of a symbolic system that's missing right now to allow global trade to the smallest atoms of individual workers in India, and then allows them to then utilize that in a way that they can use locally, right? And I think that system will happen a bit more organically in India, but in China, maybe in force. Like, I think China realizes the potential of crypto. They'll probably plug it into the CBDC and allow some kind of an exchange.
3: Uh, You you talk about, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, you're good. Okay, Um, you, you talk about India, the heart, right? The the yeah. the, the biometric uh, identification system. So I, I happen to know the guy who was in charge of the rollout. Not Nandan Nidakani, who was the chairman, who thought out all the strategy and politics, but a guy called Ram Sharma, and who is now, I think, the, is he still the chairman of uh, Telecom Regulatory Authority? But he... But but before he was the director general in charge of the implementation of Atar, so 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 when I was in Delhi, I used to sort of meet him quite regularly. Um, the program was very very smartly designed. Um, I think one key use case that they they they, they 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 were trying to address is that before that, uh, I mean you know Indian government is more socialist than most governments in yeah. this world, so they distribute lots of um, lots of welfare, lots of subsidies, um, but traditionally the di- distribution has not been very efficient because there's lots of intermediaries. And uh, as a result, first, there's leakage. And second is that, I mean, you really don't know whether the money has reached out to to the final people that you want to, want, want the money to go to. So so they designed this um, so that uh, there's a central database and people's biometrics are, are kept. And yeah. um, and uh, whatever that you do, you can verify, I mean, the person is ready, uh, who the person is before yeah. before any transaction can happen. But of course that's just a just a verification system uh the yep. payment and, and et cetera is not part of that so so, so it, it doesn't close the whole loop yet but I, I would imagine if if any government has the has the central um centralized digital currency i mean there are lots of things they can do and, yep. and, and even if you think about the the, the macro economic economy planning so china will probably know exactly how much the economy is growing instead of relying on local officials to submit all this all, this, um, yeah. all these surveys, which they might, yeah. might not
0: <laughs> Yeah, mm. yeah. I'll, I'll make two points. Like, I, I think everything that we're talking to just is exactly what everyone in the, the cryptocurrency space specifically are talking to. Right, You're talking more efficient capital and that, that's very traceable. And it's uh, in a sense why. Well, so what, it's like this kind of just decentralization versus centralization. And, mm. and what we're all talking about is building out the infrastructure to kind of build out that world. And the, the only question to my mind, though, is like if digital currency does become bigger and bigger, which I think it will, will coexist with normal fiat and cryptocurrency essentially only needs to be widely adopted if it becomes fiat itself. Right. Um, what happens to managing business cycles? right? Because like, traditionally, right, with, with money supply, the way it works is like you would you print more money by buying and selling like uh, bonds or something like this right, to, to control the money supply. How, how does that actually work with digital currencies then? It's, it's a very different mechanism, correct?
2: No, you, you set the rules. I mean, if you think about it, like c- governments raise um, or, or modify the system of, of how uh, a country runs by, by three things, right? You quantitative easing, which is basically printing more money, uh, raising and reducing interest rates. And lastly, by some kind of, of fiscal management, right? By launching projects yeah. and, and then like, that's supporting-
0: by, That's by physically buying up assets and selling assets. Right? Like no, no, the months. third one is no. saying. Wow, we'll, yes, we'll spend how money four works. billion. If you want to increase the money yeah. supply, you buy bonds or sell bonds. That's that's it. Yeah, no, that's the first one. That's the first yeah. one. Yeah.
2: So, quant- yeah, quantitative easing, interest rates, and then fiscal management. Meaning, like, we are going to spend a hundred billion and like take over Afghanistan, whatever, and le- and then like figure out how you support that with either one or two. Right? Let's not get into Afghanistan, but. Um, <laughs> I but that. I, I think what, what then happens, if you have a digital currency, it's no difference because what, what then happens is interest rates, you do it the same way you used to. Um, quantitative easing, instead of selling it, I, I mean, right now, if you think about it, when a bank settles at the end of the day, it's not like someone physically goes to a bank and gives them a briefcase, right? They're like, they're like ones yeah. and zeros actually change and then they go like, all right, you got some, I got some, done. Um, and so the same thing happens except the underlying software protocol at which it happens is just a different system that's it um, and so so everything else as the guy who's going to the atm and, and taking it out it's going to be the same now to your point about whether fiat will coexist my my position is that digital currencies will be fiat meaning meaning central banks like think about right now in most uh, countries that are moving towards that direction most transactions happen using a non physical uh Asset, right? Meaning you use your phone to scan a QR code or you use a little physical credit card, right? Use a bit of cash, but cash will eventually just dwindle the same way newspapers went. And at some point, we'll show our kids like little coins and tell them at some point we used to have to carry that in our pockets and it makes a little jangly sound, right? I don't think our kids will actually know what a coin does, right? But they'll. (laughs) Sorry? That would be amazing. No, it's true. I mean, like, have you seen a child look at the, the twirly cord of a cord, corded phone and go, what is this? Or oh, cassette? And these were like, yeah. the, the iPhone came out in 2007 for a sense of scale, right? But there are kids who are in their teens today who don't know what the twirly cord of a corded phone is, yeah. right? And so if you project 20 years down the right, Line coins will be this cool thing that they show in museums, and cash money will be a cool thing that they show in museums, right? But so when you use your credit card or when you use your uh, wallet, behind that the software protocol layer will be this digital currency, right? Um, to the end user there there is no difference, you, you're, the but yeah. the, at the software and infra layer there's there's a huge amount of things that are happening there, and that will allow probably better credit scoring, better protection of people who are vulnerable, better ways of, of routing resources, a more fungible, more liquid um, asset layer with how currencies are used. Um, so I think that's what what will happen. Like, for, But but from, from our perspective as consumers, you're just okay. not going to see much of a difference.
3: We mentioned about, um, about um, how do you call that, um, the sort of management cycles, right? I mean, theoretically, if the government has... Uh, all the data about each transaction that's happening in a society on a real <laughs> basis, Andrew, I'm not looking at you, um, you, know, no, you would good, not we're
0: good, yes. have the cycles
3: theoretically, right? You will not have the cycles because, yeah. because I mean, cycles are not a good thing. I, uh, it's, I would, it's just because, yeah. because policy ha- policy adjustments have lags. And, yeah, and, I, um, and, and, yeah, yeah, and you don't even know when it's taking effect. You don't know what the effect is until like much later. So, yeah. So, 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 so theoretically, if you have all the data to you real time, then if you manage that responsibly, there will be no cycles.
0: Yeah, I, I would like to. I'll probably have to deep dive on that on like a kind of separate segment of EOA where I talk to experts on this because I I kind of really wonder is that really exactly the utopia. Where biz- I mean, do, do, why, why do business cycles exist, right? There, there's some over-exuberance in, in one part of the market or not, but um, it would be very interesting to see if, that, if what you're saying comes true. Uh, but I, th- I think let's move on to the next segment since we spent enough time on, on uh, the cryptocurrency part. Well, sorry, not crypto, but more of uh, digital currencies. Uh, so uh, Andrew wanted to talk about the section, the future of SaaS, which I think uh, is a very interesting topic for Southeast Asia, uh, which is a very kind of nascent market for SaaS. Uh, Honestly, I couldn't find too much information of anyone writing specifically on Southeast Asian SaaS other than a few VCs doing PR articles. Uh, But I did find one guy who wrote two pretty decent articles on SaaS, um, Dev Kare, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He's a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. And he, he wrote his first article in 2014, where he just kind of describes the Indian context for SaaS. And then he wrote another article in 2019, which broadly talks about India and Southeast Asia as well. Uh, but his first piece basically describes SaaS coming in different wa- four different waves. Right, The first wave was in the late 80s and the early 90s, starting with accounting softwares tied to desktop. The second wave was in the late 90s with corporate-led SaaS, you know, outsourced from uh, you know, companies like Oracle, uh, where it's finance and ERP. Right? Then you have the third wave in the two thousands for India, which was antivirus and CRM, and the fourth wave was you know from two thousand ten onwards, where he was predicting that SaaS was going to be based off cloud-native companies only, right? And those are more of the companies that we know today, right? The Atlassians, the Zendesk, the Salesforce, and those kind of things. And I, I think you could think of Southeast Asia in very similar ways, but maybe different time periods. You know, we we do have these kind of uh, Mostly for Southeast Asia, we have a lot of imports for SaaS that was well known, right? Everyone's using Slack. People are using like QuickBooks and Zero, um, and that's a little bit differentiated when you get to maybe more localized kind of companies, or like where you have to do HR specific tasks, right? So uh, the so I guess my, my my question to you guys is, you know, how do you guys see SaaS unfolding? Who are the players? Is is it going to be is it possible for Southeast Asia to have a SaaS company that's developed that it can have a global scale, or does that have to be very local focused? Where it's like you know, India plus Southeast Asia. What do you guys think, Andrew? This was your topic, so
2: yeah, I think it's sorry guys, my, my connection isn't exactly the greatest today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna work on this connection thing. Um, can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah, let me yes. hear you. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. So so I, I guess the reason why I brought this topic up is if you look at VC in um, emerging or oh, sorry developed markets traditionally after this wave of investing in these asset heavy companies um and this b2c growth there is a movement towards b2b um specifically b2b SaaS, right uh, and it's in the us and europe they've come in different forms of companies developing software stacks that help these startups to grow and Sometimes the complexity of these B two B SaaS tools also is kind of shocking. For example, in the U.S., you'll find multiple competitors of tools to solve cap table issues, right? And what generally yeah. then happens is startups all across the the globe end up using these American uh, tools, um, and the the it seems to me like then there's a dearth of opportunities for startups. To exist in 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 non-developed markets that are developing B two B SaaS tools. So theoretically, there's almost two approaches that can happen. One is um, one is startups create a B two B SaaS tool that that provides a service that solves a very clear emerging markets problem. Um, yep. And so 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 an example of that is um, so there's Freshworks in India. Right. So if you guys are familiar with Twilio uh, in, in, um, in the US that develops this like whole suite of connectivity tools, um, there's been two companies that have been on my radar. One is InfoBip, which is Croatian, it's Croatia's first unicorn, uh, and Freshworks, which is an Indian startup. And like, if you think like both these companies uh, have built their software stack on top of what uh, WhatsApp right? And, and what they do is they provide suites of connectivity tools. Um, and, if you, and if you think about WhatsApp, like the US doesn't use WhatsApp as much as a lot of other nations. And as a result, that kind of maturity around building tools around WhatsApp um, doesn't exist in the US. And so there's a clear white space there. Um, and uh, outs- so that's like the first kind of tangent, right? So it's like Emerging markets solution using existing tools, building on top of that tools. Um, The second is whether there's just like complete standalone opportunities that no one's looking at, and these are like super fresh unicorns. Uh, And so there's like two examples I can think of. You've got Canva in Australia that came up with a, an incredible way to design and and uh, storytell that didn't, you know, doesn't look that sophisticated at first. But then you look under the hood, it's an incredible product, right? In Malaysia, you have a chart that was very close to what Canva was developing um, several years ago. I'm not sure what the status of, of, of them are. So that's that's the second thing, like a complete unicorn, unicorn like fresh out of nowhere, right? And then I guess the third is like, um, do you then build a tool? that I guess I, I guess this is the hardest one, right? Can you build a, a startup that's that's so special that it just starts taking over a lot of the world in ways that we don't even think of? So Atlassian is a perfect example. Australian startup started by two blokes who still own, I think, 60% of the company, uh, even post-IPO, and now it's like every tech company you know uses them, right? Um, so I guess I wanted to have this open conversation to see, like, do we see... No in Southeast Asia, is it predominantly going to be the first way where we just end up finding like weird emerging market stories and building for them? Or do we actually see? Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: it's, it's interesting because um, I think you kind of, have come to the same framework that dev claret has I, I probably didn't put it very succinctly but he kind of puts um from 2014 uh, 2010 onwards where it's cloud native right he puts in two categories workflow automation or tools right and yep. kind of separated those two of those different business models that you're talking about uh, from like freshworks or like for example a tool like canva right so yep. and then the other thing that he frames works is that he believes that there's an eastern versus western category Western kind of been very global focused. So I make a product, but I sell globally. And Slack kind of works everywhere global, right? But the other one you're talking about is that emerging focused only, where it's just Indian, plus then I, in order to increase the valuation, because the biggest uh, argument against what he's saying is that the TAM is too small because it's very fragmented, right? So it's very emerging market-specific problems, which a big SaaS ecosystem can grow, but is it limited by size is the question. Right. So then he, he goes on to say is that the way people do is like my home country, plus Southeast Asia, plus China, plus whatever. And then it has to be very emerging markets focused. So he believes that there's this whole category that's untapped and can go much deeper. So I guess the question is, do you guys believe that the term is kind of constrained due to regional differences and very more unique problems because it's more emerging market focused, Or can, you know, can can something from Southeast Asia become a Canva that's more globally used?
1: I mean, I think this. So oh, go, ahead, yeah. oh, go no, ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Sean, go ahead. No, no, you go no. no ahead. Please, I insist. No, you go ahead. You I insist, ahead. You go ahead. I insist, Your
3: name starts with D, which is which J. Go ahead. You're, <laughs> older,
1: <laughs> you're older, so I defer to you. So you go ahead. <laughs> <Screw> you. <laughs> okay, okay. No, seriously, please go ahead. I, I'm still formulating anyway.
3: No, I think I, I think a few things. So uh, you guys probably know there's this company in Singapore called PatSnap which mm. basically helps companies manage their intellectual property, check databases, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh I do remember in 2016, was that 2016? Um, they raised 17. I didn't meet the team. I didn't I mean it's a unicorn now. It's I didn't meet the team okay. in 2016, but um, but I I I I was I was at ASU campus in China. Uh, where Pat Snap's office is. I remember that day, it was a week before Chinese New Year. Um, a few startups from Singapore crammed there because they thought that the market in China was big. And also because I think some incentives from Singapore government so that um, so that they, could, they could go there with a very low cost. Mm. They switched to off the aircon, air I mean the heating basically for the whole day because they said they wanted to save on electricity. And that was the situation they were in. And... Um, and I spoke with the, w- with the lady who was run, running running the the, the the accelerator there, and Pasternak was there, and she said, um, most companies are here. Uh, many companies were here because nobody in Singapore believed that they could be viable, so they come here because of subsidies and because they save the cost. Um, but 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 that, that's co- that company was addressing a global problem, right? I mean, mm. the, the enterprises have that intellectual property. Issue they need to run across countries, and, um, and 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 if if each one builds their own database, that's not feasible. If someone spends effort over the years to have all these things connected, that offers value to people. So, so that's Singapore, right? I mean, you have um, you have lots of MNCs with headquarters here, regional headquarters here, and you have companies which are able to build SaaS for enterprise uh, with large subscription uh, subscription fees, and uh, that that's only one side. And the second side is that. Um, the issues that they do deal with the businesses in the region and maybe beyond. Um So, so for instance, I mean, you guys know Shopify. Is Shopify SaaS or is it Shopify a platform? SaaS, I would right? say that Most people say SaaS. So but now they've launched um, the
2: marketplace side of a no, Well, it's Bitcoin.
0: becoming a, yeah, it's, it's becoming a platform. Long-term, the long-term play is going to be a platform, but I think initially right, it's SaaS, I guess. Yeah. How do you think Shopify is doing in this region? It's pretty big, right? I know a lot of SMEs that use it. Like an- anecdotally, I mean, I don't know the actual numbers. You, I don't mean, know the you numbers. mean in no. terms of
1: like transaction volume, or you're talking about just like number of like uh, premium accounts or Shopify Plus accounts?
3: In terms of number of co- accounts, I mean, uh, very- it doesn't matter what it, what is.
1: No, well, transaction volume is okay, but answer your question, my my guess is probably it's quite poor. would be my guess.
3: I'm not sure about now but 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 about a year ago I tried Shopify with a friend uh, for a small business and uh, you, you know what 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 was the biggest problem we had with Shopify Payments? too slow?
0: Nope. Uh, to me it's are too slow payments typically is a problem.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, every time. I mean I
0: mean I'm
3: I'm not sure about now but the back then I remember you couldn't there's no way for you to register an account with just phone number and no emails. Oh,
0: so oh. I, you know inter- interestingly enough though i had a lot of problems with shopify circa 2004 2014 mm. when i was doing rent address and uh, it was mm. not robust it was not like where it is today but apparently today if you use it and if you look at all the consultants in the third-party markets who service Shopify uh, and all these kind of consultants who build for these small companies, it's a lot more robust now from what I understand at least. So they, they have gone to a point where it's probably more serviceable and more of this kind of global product, I guess. Um, I, I thought I would shy away from it, but I, even like um, Amazing Grace is looking at some hybrid solution of this, right, I think, for, for Shopify. So I, I don't know. It seems that they are improving and it is getting better where they start to localize more to make sure it works. That's my guess. I know.
3: It is. It is. It is. Uh, my point is that I mean, there, there are there always these kind of small things which um, which would, would would sort of uh, make the experience not that fantastic. And um, yeah. and you probably hear lots of people. He, I mean, even people like us who have uh, who have sufficient global exposure, complaining about SaaS from I mean, global mm-hmm. SaaS which do not have customer service.
0: Point. see your point. I see your point. Mm. Mm.
3: Right. I mean. Uh, and how how do you service the customers in emerging yeah. markets? I mean, how do you build small features yeah. in a localized way? I mean, Facebook. I mean, Facebook has been trying to localize the the e commerce part, and uh, they just can't do it.
1: Well, Facebook is also like I think uh, a notoriously poor platform for anyone that's ever used like Facebook Business Manager deeply. It's it's terrible. Oh God. It's it's. But I mean, okay. So I guess my my thought about this is also I think in the the con- the question that you're asking for me there's a context of like what is the sales approach for SaaS, right? So the way I understand SaaS uh, sales is there's typically two approaches, right? There's the top-down approach and there's the bottom-up approach. So the top-down approach is like the traditional approach where you go and you wine and dine the CIO and then the CEO or the CFO or who, who whoever it is, right? And then you sell them a software suite of, you know, and it's worth like, $10 million a year or, or whatever it is right and then there's a bottom-up approach which is sort of like the um uh what's a good example like a like a zoom or like a box example where you just get people within the organization to adopt the product because it's a cool feature and then eventually enough you get a critical mass of users inside mm-hmm. the organization and then the cio or whoever's in charge of procurement is almost like pigeonholed into buying it because it's become so readily obvious right and so i think in your point about Patsnap, it's a specific example where it's a Singaporean-based company. But as you mentioned, it's in a market where there are a lot of Ms large MNCs and solving like a very specific problem that it's I think it's idiosyncratic to a company that's based in Singapore or an equivalent mm. to Singapore, because you have a lot of these large corporations that are headquartering their Asia operations there, and you have that uh, that customer base that's there, right? I think if you were to try and build a similar product. Uh, I don't know, Let's like in Cambodia, I mean, I'm toss on as in Cambodia, like an IP management product. I think it's very difficult because then you just don't have that feedback with your client base unless your founders are traveling to, to Singapore on a regular basis, right? So I, I think my point is, it's like to ask that question, you know, I, I think when you really deep dive into like One, where was that company actually founded? Is it in like a large regional hub? Or if that's the case, yes, I think you could build a regional uh, or global company even, right? But if we're talking about like a more remote market where you don't necessarily have access to those client base and you have to go a different approach, I think we're talking about a regional plus plus model.
0: Yeah. It it seems that it alludes to that. It's not really black or white. It seems that the Southeast Asia region is going to have a plethora of SaaS that is, could be global focused, depending where it's based, or it could just be very homegrown, solving local problems and has different TAM sizes. I guess you know. Yeah. So it, it seems that, but I think I, I think the one thing we can agree on is it's probably very early stages still, and there's there's plenty of room for growth and investment in this area that, that you know either you could be building or investing and taking advantage of, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Any any final comments on this before we move on? Um,
3: one thing is that uh, I mean, if, if you look at uh, past per say, it's not too much um, product focus as much as it's uh, it's about a sort of accumulating database and uh, and and putting all the resources mm-hmm. together. Um, I'm not sure you guys know a company in India called Postman. No. No. It does. I mean. It, it's a product designed for developers, and uh, it helps people with API. And uh, I think the company is what a few billion dollars. Um, wow. when I first took a look at this company, I think back in 2015, it was like, it just raised one round of funding. And, uh, and many people said that the problem it was trying to resolve was too small, too, too tough, but, uh, but over the years, I know like two investors and one, two investors in India consistently back in backing that, and now it's a unicorn. Um, and, and I spoke with uh, some of these investors. They said that, um, I mean, in India, it's possible because uh, not not only because it's um, it's, it's English speaking, but also because you really get 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 to tap into lots of lots of tech talent to build this kind of products, which requires lots of lots of tech. Yeah, well,
0: well I think that that is a very interesting point because we're at a point in time after so much money has come into the system and older e-commerce models and all the other kind of plethora of mm-hmm. startups that are coming up. There's enough talent to do it now. Tech-wise, and we have certain regional hubs like Vietnam, where there is a tech base that that can support this. I mean, it seems that like there's enough infrastructure at this point where SaaS can really just build off and take off. So, that's mm-hmm. yeah, a good point.
3: I, I I think in Southeast Asia, only Vietnam has the yeah, has only, the tech yeah, talent base to support <laughs> yes, that. Correct. Mean, yeah. I mean, Singapore Singapore has 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 good base, but. Uh, but can you build a build a team that actually scales in Singapore? Because uh, because I mean, Google is here, Tencent is here, ByteDance is here. Yeah. A lot of I people mean, do that, right? They can offer I, to people.
0: I feel a lot of people do that, right? Though isn't that like the short term trend? I think so, right? Heck?
2: To what the scale yeah, so in like, singapore I, I,
0: I, well, like what, like I talked to a lot of tech guys in the, in, the, in the other podcasts, right? And their, their take is that if you've raised too much money, they say just build a team directly in Singapore because you have access to the talent. But the problem is, of course, you'd be fighting for a very small pool, obviously. But like, it just seems to be that the short-term trend is that that's what I think is happening. Like if you're headquartered there, you kind of build a tech team there, which doesn't make sense long-term you know it does make more sense to do a kind of a vietnam and figure it out but the problem problem is like no one has the connections like no one's connected to that like the the american vietnamese guy who who, who commands an army of tech you know followers cuz he's a tech well, rock my star my take is this
2: it depends on what you mean by talent right so um, yeah Like a lot of people end up having hubs in like Vietnam or Moscow or any of these cheaper geographies. But when it comes to hiring, like, look, if you're trying to hire someone who is a CTO of a pretty significant American startup and entice them to come to Southeast Asia, it's most likely they're going to move to Singapore. For lifestyle reasons, right? If if you look at what Gojek yeah. has done, like Gojek has this leadership team now that's a lot of people that they've hired from the US, and a lot of them have yeah, actually yeah. just settled down in in Singapore. Correct. Um, yeah. Shopee is doing the same thing as well, right? So I think it's more it's not it's not tech talent that's that's already in Singapore. It's like can I entice successful CTOs to come and move to Southeast Asia? Where are they most likely to live?
0: Yeah, yeah. and and when you have the money, you can do that, right? It's just uh, long term is a question. I think that that's you know will that sustain?
2: Exactly.
3: I think somebody should do a. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe not look at developers, but somebody should do a, a sort of a breakdown of, uh, of portal managers of uh, of Grab C and look at the the provenance of these people. And oh. um, I, I don't think many are actually from Southeast Asia.
2: Well, since yeah, since you brought it up John, I feel like you volunteered yourself.
0: Yes, thank you. Momentum works.
2: Have a team. <laughs> Yeah. I cannot wait to see this report. Yeah.
0: Well, but one, one last comment, though. I, I think um, Lazada had the foresight early on, based off like, uh, how Rocket started. Um, even Rocket, first, the first tech team was in China. That was just really hard communication-wise. Moved it to Philippines. That just blew up. And then we land, they kind of landed building a tech team in Vietnam long term. And I, I don't know, uh, Andrew, is exactly. the tech team still based in Vietnam?
2: No, it was hilarious. So, so, so what happened was it was Vietnam. And then because our CTO at the time was was Russian, we ended up having a Moscow hub, and Talon was incredibly cheap because the rubo collapsed right and there was like yeah. this sudden yeah. group of like very cheap developers in Russia. So actually, the biggest growth stage we had, I think the largest group of developers we had was all based out of Russia. and so at some point oh, we had okay. Russia, Vietnam, uh, and then like you know Singapore was like data science and a bit more technical stuff. Uh, the product team was also in Singapore. And then, so it was three hubs. And then, post acquisition, Shenzhen became the the tech hub, and Moscow. And well, it went back. Moscow was closed. And then now, I think it's Vietnam, Singapore, Shenzhen. That's oh, so
0: interesting. So Vietnam still persisted. And you know, the interesting thing is because yeah. uh, my my friend, who's American Vietnamese, did a lot of consulting based in Vietnam to help build out the early team there. So it was just because of one guy was there, and he had the the talent and. Was able to help, you know, outfit it and still lasting today. So it's interesting.
3: And you think why why Grab built, uh, built, built a built um, uh, a research center in Seattle in the first place was, mm. was because somebody they heart wanted to be in Seattle. And why they built a <laughs> research center in in Beijing is because um, a team which was just. Uh, obliterated by DD and ha- had to find other things to do. And they're quite a full team and the team is based yeah. in Beijing. So that's why they, they build yeah. on top
0: of that team. And I guess with remote these days, you know, you kind of follow where the talent wants to be. Otherwise you don't get the talent, right? Someone else will take it. So you kind of end up with these interesting hubs. Okay. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's, let's move it. on to the next topic. The, the last topic is the role of government and startups and innovation. Uh, so this was started by Dave. Uh, Dave sent this interesting article, which is very Malaysian specific. Uh, it's about this um, government arm called MDEC, Malaysia Digital Economy Corporation. And the mandate for MDEC is very interesting, which I found out is that their main job since 1996, when they were founded, was, is to drive FDI into the country, create local champions and create a flourishing uh, ecosystem for digital adoption. Right, and they kind of do this by having different local programs, and uh, we could we could talk about the recent scandal or hoo ha in Malaysia, or or we could speak to the larger you know implications of the region and you know the role of government. But uh, but essentially, what happened was um, the govern the was it the I don't know which government hired the recent CEO for MDEC. and I guess the prevailing view in the article that we read was that she was incompetent and basically failed, and within two point five years she had to leave. Um, I guess the more nuanced view is that she was kind of set up to fail. Her background was not suited to be someone driving FDI for a country. She was a banker who operated in the US for more than I don't know 20 years, 16 years as a banker. Um, so maybe she would have been more suited for the local government VC arm Cap. Uh, being an outsider didn't help. She couldn't ingratiate to, you know, the the way the, way the leadership was kind of working. Um, and it's really hard to say though, you know, if it was if it was fair to call that she was, you know, the least impactful because she only worked 2.5 years. Her predecessors worked for four years or longer. Uh, so it was hard to say, you know, what, what that what that might have looked out for the next two years if she stayed. And also, I think she should get more cre- more credit because of COVID and the effects of that. But people were still being very harshly critical. Um, Dave, I don't know. Why, why don't you take it off since uh, this was your piece?
1: <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, oh God, you can do this to me. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't have a strong viewpoint. I just think this would be uh, an interesting conversation one because of the recent events in Malaysia and two also if we look at and to bring back an old topic especially what's been happening in in China in the last like month right like when we first started the podcast that was when the crackdowns um, you know when the when China first initiated their string of programs reforms whatever whatever you want to want to call them right and then sort of as it's progressed we're seeing more and more um, like sort of like what their what their roadmap is right and, and to me it you know with the recent uh, regulations on like the amount of hours kids can spend playing video games uh, theater radical end to the 996 work uh, framework it just seems that you know the Chinese government has basically in my eyes said you know for the last 15 20 years maybe more 30 years right ever since we opened up when China opened up, their core focus was on economic development, right? That was their main interest, but now they're sort of going back the other way, sort of back to the roots of the party where we're saying we're going to be more ideologically driven and more about the welfare uh, of the people, right? And I I feel like the Chinese example has been a very, it's an instructive example of what can be accomplished uh, by government vis a tech, and then you sort of contrast that with the Malaysian uh, MDEC uh, magic. There's nothing like superfuse agencies, right? I feel like these agencies in Malaysia have really not shown much in the results uh, in terms of either FDI or, you know, Malaysian startups. Uh, I mean, the Carson example is, is sort of, they're, they're touting that, but I think it's like a fringe case. So for me, it's really just a conversation about everyone's ideas and thoughts about like, what is you know, the, the right role of government? Uh, or what is the best way that you can play the an ecosystem? And for me, since I brought it up, I guess I'll start, I think the best way I can, I can think of it is in terms of like, you know, setting up these regulatory, these, these one-off agencies like MDEC or, or Magic or whatever, not to criticize the people that work there, it seems to be a, an ineffective way of, of doing it, right? So if you think about MDEC's stated purpose, if FDI is a primary driver, and you think about like what actually drives um, FDI. It's gonna be things like you know, political stability, you know, your your tax incentives. Your your incentives, yeah, your your currency, your wage rates, your tax rates, transportation, infrastructure, yeah. size of your local market, you know, all these things, right? And these things these are things that an agency, so MDECLES we that with is under the Ministry of um, I think media communications or telecommunications, right? These yes. are factors that that sort of agency can um, realistically impact, especially in a, a environment such as Malaysia, where the politics are so, uh, factional, it's, 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 it's impossible. So, so for me, that approach just seems like a very misguided approach, right? Because it really has to come, like, if, if you're going to make something like successful, you really need to come from like a top, top down mandate to to one, like the one that they took in China, where the CCP, were like we're going to open up, we're going to invite all these tech companies in, right. We're going to have strings attached. Which is basically like knowledge transfer. You're going to give us all of your IP. we we'll won't give you access to the markets, and that's I think has proven to be very successful, right? And I think the, the Malaysian case has just not been. So that that's my starting off point.
3: Hopefully
1: yeah, we'll I mean it's, it's
0: it's it's interesting because well, you you kind of point out that uh, China is is very uh, command, and you kind of they also they also set up the infrastructure to to kind of allow it to happen. And if you think the closest government that could possibly replicate that might be Vietnam, probably. Um, but it, I, I, the other interesting fact is, I think every country has similar agencies like Malaysia, and the question is, I don't know if, if these are really effective or not. Because the other libertarian view is that maybe government shouldn't even bother and let the you know the markets kind of figure it out themselves, right? So I don't know. But
3: I mean, my view is that you should not be, you should not even bother what government is bothering doing.
1: There you go. <laughs> but how can you? But how no, can you? I mean, that's like, but like, let's say, like, like I, I mean. You, Go ahead. Sorry. No, go no, ahead. no, no.
3: no. You, you just finish your point. So so, 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 if you look at China, at each level of local government, there's all all this like a um, like um, proliferation of these useless agencies, which uh, which which do lots of uh, lots of events. I mean, or no, no, so accelerators, trade yeah, shows, correct. which many of them eventually turned out to be sort aesthetic projects. But uh, but entrepreneurs just didn't care. I mean, yeah. if, if there's something that's interesting like, that can make use of, I mean, cheap brand for half a year, like the, the pet snap uh, idea the uh, sorry the company I mentioned just now um, um uh, sure we use it but but if there's nothing that I can gain from I stay away, away from it but 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 um China' different because uh, because this market's big uh, it's big mm-hmm. I mean true uh, Dave, you mentioned about knowledge transfer um, I remember a few years ago I was talking to somebody from uh, the, the Mexican government that was doing the the, the days of Felipe Calderon, so and drug wars so, so 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 they told me that okay they were trying to Get 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 the transfer of knowledge and technology from MNCs which invest in Mexico, but people just didn't yeah. care. I mean, if if you try to force them, and they go to Costa Rica, so yeah. so. But, but China's a different case because because people make compromises. They they want that market, okay. and uh, and I think that, I think that's the leverage um, big country governments would have um, if they open up their, their access to their domestic market. Um, and also another point that I actually brought up: the infrastructure. I mean, if you look at all the roads, railroad, um, airports, whatever the China, China, Chinese government has built. And I mean, that, that made lots of things possible. I mean, the KYC infrastructure they built for the banks that allowed uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay to, to start. Regulation if, as well. Um, if, if, if you think what, I mean, if, if, if Alipay had to do the KYC on a, every single customer, um, and I mean, imagine the cost that would need to, to develop this whole system.
1: No, yeah, I, yeah I, dude, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think you're right. The IP knowledge transfer part is it, it's uniquely Chinese because they're probably the only market that can command that sort of leverage over over companies coming in, right? And, and I agree with you that like a lot of these like accelerator days, demo days, whatever, it's kind of like it's very ego driven. There's not a lot of value yeah. being added to it. Maybe like I think the better model is like what Singapore did where essentially, uh, I think, okay, so maybe we keep it local, right? But I think the Singapore model is actually a really good model where, you know, anyone that got Tamasic money, the mandate was, if you, if you take money from a Tamasic or Tamasic, to Tamasic is a Singapore sovereign wealth fund right, for the listeners. Uh, basically, any uh, tech company that received uh, a funding, round of funding led by Tamasic, had to move their headquarters to Singapore, which is sort of the story of how Malaysia lost Grab, Uh, for those who don't know, so Grab was originally a Malaysian company started by Malaysian, the original operation were in Malaysia. Uh, then at some point, I think the C or D round, I don't know what it was, uh, Mm Tomasic led the round and they had to move their headquarters. And so, and I think that's, that's probably the better way. Right. So I think Singapore, what their approach essentially was, was it a couple things, right? So at the early stage, the, they injected a lot of liquidity into the early venture ecosystem. Right. So for a period of time, and I want to say like 2016 to 2018, basically any company that's tech company that started uh, in Singapore, and, you know, didn't have to be owned by Singaporean, but just headquartered in Singapore, was eligible for a, a significant amount of grants from the Singaporean government. I think they were giving out somewhere between like 100 to 200,000. Uh, and it wasn't very difficult to get from what I understand. So that's like at the bottom, it sort of like building up this foundation. And then at the very sort of like late stage, they're essentially forcing all these large tech companies to move to Singapore and put their base of operations and be domiciled there. So I think they trust those two ends, the special very, very well. And I think that's like the mm-hmm. failing on you know, Malaysia side is for like a long time, right? They try to execute the liquidity in the market, uh, with, uh, initiatives this like MavCap and there's a bunch of grants. Correct. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think they, they missed out on that late stage where they became obsessed with having, I think what my, my impression is like Malaysian grown companies, where I think what they should incentivize is having large tech companies in Malaysia, regardless of your origin, as long as we just eventually domicile there.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because I want to pick on Jagan's view, because if you feel that we shouldn't care what governments are doing, are you saying Singapore has been ineffective? I mean, of course, they benefit from infrastructure, too. Like, they developed fully. And then, of course, when they deploy these policies, it, it's almost it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you have the reputation, they're just going to come there anyway, right? So, so, I mean, I guess there's that nuance, but do, do you think Singapore has not done a good job then or you don't care but it seems because it seems like you're benefiting from being in Singapore and uh, government policies have helped then right well i mean <sighs>
3: I think a few things. First, we, we need to look at the government as a whole, right? What they have done collectively, different agencies and uh, and, and, and all the infrastructure they have built. I mean, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's not the only point. just, a, just, yeah. not one just thing. the broadband, the roads, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, also, and also Singapore made it really easy for uh, for other venture capital to set up. I mean, the yeah. family offices, just look at how many family offices have set up in Singapore for yeah. the last year and a half. Yeah, right? yeah. correct. So, 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 so we put, put, put all these people, all this capital and all these resources together. Even though many of the when many of the money invested, even many of the grants invested went to waste, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're in a venture space, right? I mean, yes. if, if only ten percent of only five percent of them, I mean, reach their uh, their sort of um, uh, full use, then they still you have a vibrant ecosystem which which, which works on. Um, and and also, I mean, Singapore also benefited um, from the fact that uh, that that the many Chinese companies, not I mean, the geopolitics, right? I mean, many Chinese companies now are setting up their, their headquarters in Singapore. I mean, I think Malaysia tried uh, historically to get these companies to, to set up in Malaysia. I remember for for a while, I mean, maybe still the case. Huawei's um, South Pacific headquarters is in Malaysia, um, but but I just feel that it was not done you know, in a very very sort of collaborative and consistent way. Mm.
2: Yeah. Gents, I've been very quiet because I just don't like commenting on Malaysian politics uh, or for the Malaysian <laughs> government. As, as the so in the room, the sole Malaysian in this room, you know, who's at probably at the highest risk. Jagan can say whatever he wants because he he's within Singapore's sovereign borders. I'm going to watch my words very carefully here. But but so okay, my take on this is it depends on what you think the role of the government is, and some governments act like corporations. Um, in terms of trying to uh, like participate in nation building as a effort to build something that's going to last legacies and and endure, right? Singapore takes that approach, right? The the Lee family in the way that they built Uh, policy structures systems how you know you know the highest paid government workers globally are Singaporean government workers right because it's 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 become a job that you aspire to as a young one in Singapore it's a very different beast when we talk about Singapore and every everyone else right now I think fundamentally the government has with regards to the tech ecosystem it needs to solve a couple of core issues the first is you try to figure out where are the real fundamental drivers. Okay. So some context here, right? I spent, nine months with the World Bank working on a project called EPIC, Entrepreneurship Program for Innovation in the Caribbean. It's an incredible project. I actually just did it because I wanted to hang out in the beaches of Bahamas, which I got to do a lot. But the point of the project was to actually understand what makes uh, successful ecosystems develop around tech and then try to replicate that in Jamaica, Barbados and Trinidad, working directly with venture banks um, and like the local you know, startup incubators. So I, I did a lot of studies looking at Berlin, looking at, at Israel, looking at Tel Aviv, trying to understand Mumbai, like what made these ecosystems kick up? Um, And fundamentally, the first biggest driver is talent, right? You need to have human capital that can drive this ridiculous innovation, right? Because ultimately, you're looking at factors at like patents per capita as as a factor of like productivity in terms of intellectual capital, right? You're looking at factors like how much trademarks does your company generate, whether it's Hardware manufacturing, software, whatever it is, like is there new ideas that are coming out? Is there a process and system to support those new ideas? And then is there a framework to commercialize those ideas, monetize them, and make them bigger, right? Um, The issue with a lot of governments is they end up having a lot of these Systems that actually do a lot of show and tell. You have accelerators and hackathons and meetups, and then that Mm -hmm. isn't really solving the problem. Like if you don't have the capital talent, then what is the point of all your accelerators and hackathons, right? What is the point of all these organizations that's bringing two hundred people together when two hundred of them aren't exactly world class, right? So, so my my take on this is, um, however, that being said, and this is like point number two, having these weird ecosystem building activities is necessary it's a necessary evil to create one or two programs that are through game changers, right because you're never going like it's 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 a bit like seed investing right you need to invest in a hundred for that one thing to to kind of be the right model right and if you don't do those hundred you won't know the one um and so you need like one and two to work hand in hand now take the malaysian government for example last year they did one of the greatest like biggest moves in like the tech startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia, Punjana. so 600 million USD in matching grants for VCs that were willing to invest in um, in, in Southeast Asian startups. Like initially, they had a, a bit of a stricter requirement of how much that money could be deployed in in Malaysia. They eventually relaxed that 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 requirement and 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 today there's actually a lot i mean carsom's big move to a 1.3 billion dollar unicorn is primarily driven by a lot of these like recent investments and that push by the government in in that later stage investing right um, so if i if i was to break it down like let's let's take singapore right what singapore did really well was they built these like two institutions nus and tu th- which generated a ton of engineering talent it's modeled after the way you know stanford and berkeley were built like that California tech talent, right? And how Tel Aviv is uh, three universities uh, push out this incredible tech talent, IITs in India that push out this incredible tech talent. Singapore got that right. Um, that's something that I think the Malaysian government needs to really work on. Like how do you get the talent to, to improve in terms of its, uh, its viability? Number two is like creating programs and systems that result mm. in these one or two like amazing one hit wonders, right? And they've not succeeded there. So example, you know, to, to Jahan's uh, point just now, we had this, this crazy thing in the 90s called the Multimedia Super Corridor. Uh, disclaimer, I went to Multimedia University, which is one of those parts of that corridor. The idea was to create the Silicon Valley of Southeast Asia. What ended up happening is a lot of tech companies ended up having, because you had tax breaks if you set up your company there. So Hewlett Packard, Huawei, Dell, end up setting these massive uh, departments in CyberJaya. And they ended up just staffing them with call center workers and doing customer service out of Malaysia. So they ended up being very low value jobs that didn't exactly result uh, in that, uh, exponential change in. Yeah, in Cyberjaya, yeah, which is the name of a town next to next to Putrajaya. What what, what is Cyberjaya um, for? The- and, oh, sorry. So Cyberjaya is a town. Basically, it's a planned city. Um, in the 90s, the Malaysian government uh, went through a project um, to f- try and figure out how to replicate Silicon Valley. So they created a planned city called Cyber Jaya. And Cyber Jaya had a university, that, the one that I went to, which was like modeled after MIT and Stanford, like a, it's like a tech university where people went to like learn yeah. the code and do creative stuff. And then there were a lot of other, like functional, um, like tax. So there was tax incentives for international tech companies to set up their bases there. What eventually ended up happening, uh, the university worked out relatively well. Like it was well funded. They got a lot of like international lecturers. So in terms of quality of teaching and research, it was probably one of the best in Malaysia. But like the companies that ended up. Uh, outsourcing their divisions here, ended up sending call centers and low value jobs, right? So that kind of like tech talent transfer didn't exactly happen. Now, contrast that to Singapore. Singapore did like a bunch of like different initiatives. And then, you know, I I just point out one initiative that that I'm in love with. It's called called 100E, right? And so there's an institute called um, AI Singapore. And AI Singapore was like a bunch of government geeks who got together and they were like, how do we tap onto like the growth of AI and allow you know, our government to, to ensure like the best outcomes for our people, right? 100E is a collaborative model where they're like, if you're a company that has an AI problem, we match you with AI researchers who can't find commercialization and uh, problems to solve. So it's kind of like a, a matching organization with funding with a layer of, uh, I think they provide somewhere between 200 and 250,000 uh, SING dollars of grants. They pair you up with all kinds of, of resources. So they're like, there's this dearth of research commercial guys who can't find AI researchers. How about we solve that, right? And they've got at least five or six programs that are off this technical like uh, complexity that really, really cracks at the problem. Sorry, chaps, I was cutting in and out there. I'm not sure if you got most of that.
0: Hello, hello, Andrew. Did you
3: did you finish, Andrew? I'm done. If you're done, I have a few uh, a few quick pointers here.
2: No. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Sorry, that was a that was a long rant. Uh, I was absorbing and then it it flooded out. Okay.
3: So, so first, um, I, I pretty much deal with people in all places, right? I mean, Southeast Asia, different countries, uh, Middle East, China, uh, to a certain extent, India, and uh, recently a lot with Latin America. So uh, to be honest, I think Malaysia is the, the only country where people just have this obsession. I mean, not obsession, but people love to talk about government, talk, talk about politics, talk, joke about politics. And, and, and I, I, I did have one instance where I was with a bunch of Malaysians and a bunch of Indonesians and uh, the Malaysians were complaining about, oh, our government is corrupt or whatever, and Indonesia, so what? I mean, our, our government has been pro-corrupt, so what? I mean, yeah. let's, just, let's just live on. So, so so I do think Malaysians care about their country much more than any people from any other country. Um, hmm. uh, your point about in, in, NTU and US, um, building these institutions, I, I, I mean, I graduated from NTU on a scholarship, right? They offered to, to, to people from China. Uh, but as, at the same time, they had the scholarships for for people from India. They had the scholarships for people, I mean, from Vietnam. So, so all these things uh, mm. were, were were consistent. I think at, at some point in time, uh, I had a high school classmate who went to Heidelberg in Germany, and at some point in time, his uh, his professor, um, I, I think he he was involved with leading sort of biotech whatever shit. And, and his professor was, was, was seriously considering an offer from Singapore because, uh, because that's something that uh, a publicly funded university in Europe couldn't, couldn't match. So he eventually didn't go because of some other reasons, but, uh, but it was just, just so attractive to him. And, uh, and all these things were done in a consistent way over decades. Mm, I mean, it's correct. not saying that okay, I have correct. a program for four years. Yeah, yeah. Then, then in 30 year, I mean, that the bureaucrat was in charge. This, this program changed, and the new person has a different agenda. Then, then things—I mean, just think for Lazada, right? I mean, halfway you change CEOs I and mean, change CEO again, and of <laughs> course, I mean things things are not consistent. So, <laughs> so, so, so all all all, all these things with time. In a consistent way and and over the years you see the benefits i mean initially i mean if you think about all these grants i mean people, people have been complaining about grants so you offer to people who don't deserve it but but who's there to judge I mean, who deserves it, who doesn't yeah. and uh, and and when when they offered us scholarship to come to study in singapore and um, and so us so asked uh, okay what happens if people end up not staying in singapore and the government says that, I mean, we did the calculations. As, as long as a certain percentage of you guys mm-hmm. stay in Singapore, then we were good enough. This investment yeah. is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last point uh, about, I mean, the thing about Malaysia, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been trying to do some benchmark between uh, uh, um, Southeast Asia and Latin America. I think Malaysia is in a way similar to Argentina or in a way similar to Chile.
2: So um, I want to hear this. Um, so, okay. Argentina. In the sense that
3: I mean, the the first wave of internet entrepreneurs in uh, Latin America came from Argentina. OX was co-founded by Argentinian. Mercado, Mercado Libre. is yeah, from, from 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 etc. Chile is the country which the government probably works the hardest to attract people. Startup Chile. I mean, I have a bunch no, of
0: friends. Uh, Startup Chile, But cetera. Chile developed yeah. right much more than uh, Malaysia. I think Chile is like what they're closer to Singapore. I think. I think they're closer to Malaysia. When we visited, man, it, it feels much more developed than, than living in Malaysia, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, uh, but, but, but if you think about from, from top tech talent point of view... Okay, and yeah. I don't prefer, know if that's true. Would they prefer to be in Santiago or would they prefer to be in Sao Paulo or Miami? Ah, okay. Or Bogota. I mean, yeah, good, good so... Point,
2: point. so I mean, if you like being close to Valparaiso and going to the beach and spending an hour to the mountains... Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, but that's how, that, that that that's not not how you how build a business. I mean, that's for life now. I mean, lots of people went to went to start Chile for
2: life. I mean, I mean, Andrew Andrew is trying to retire. Have I been doing it yeah. wrong? <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, come on, guys. Like, I, I'm looking at Chile a completely different. reason. Yeah, exactly. So,
3: if you want to build a business, and uh, I mean, if you think about that, Chile, what 20, 20 million people, twenty plus million people, Malaysia thirty million,
0: okay, I Brazil, see I see your point.
3: 200. Two hundred twelve, Indonesia, two hundred seventy. So, 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 and, and also this is one thing I heard from a uh, a. How, how do you call those kind of investors who invest in both public markets and uh, crossover funds? Yeah. Um. So, so from one guy from China, he has he has been exclusively investing in businesses outside China, mm-hmm. and uh, he was telling me that uh, when you go to places like uh, I mean big countries, when you go to Indonesia, when you go to Brazil, when you go to. Uh, Lagos, in, even, and even if the country is so fucked up, and you still feel that the people there give you a vibe, they are in a, in a big country. The level of confidence that they have is yeah. very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. You don't see that in relatively smaller countries. And oh. That gives very very big, uh, different dynamics, and that also, I mean, I think allows people to take risk
0: in a, in mm-hmm. a different way. Do you see that in Indonesia? Mm-hmm. It's a big country. Do you have yes. that confidence? I, I, don't, I don't think so, right? Or I mean, I mean, if you put Indonesia and Malaysia together, I mean, Indonesia.
3: Definitely come across. As, I mean, what they can execute is different story, but they definitely okay, come across as, as what you mean. confident. Yeah.
2: I, I think Indonesia is also having this new like resurgence of entrepreneurs that is creating a lot of trust and risk taking. Right? Yes. Like, I'm I'm pulling from experience when I speak to people who are ex Lazada uh, across I, I'm the sure. different markets. Yeah. The ex Lazardians in Indonesia are all like, you know, N minus three to CEO, but they're ready to quit and start a company because they've seen Bukalapak made it, they've seen yeah. Go to make it. So like the, there's a lot more appetite. Whereas like Malaysians, Thai's still are looking for corporate jobs mm. to hey, jump in. Can, right? can, can I
0: simplify right? this to two things? To have a, so if you want to have a vibrant ecosystem, it, it comes down to the government's long term ability to, to execute on long term planning. And also either having the ability to attract yeah, or yeah. grow the talent needed, right? So with that framework in mind, which countries or country is poised to take advantage of this going forward in the Southeast Asia region?
2: Are we, are we taking a vote? Yeah, right. Because, Yamba. again, I need to mention that as the sole Malaysian in this room and the one who's closest <laughs> to a prison cell, I, I vote well, Malaysia. I, I think,
0: I think Singapore, obviously, right, which they' have kind of proven already, uh, but I, th- I think you know if you if you
2: yeah absolutely
0: the the countries that i I've, I've lived and worked in, like Thailand and Vietnam, they have very well regarded local institutions, so they do have this kind of ability to grow talent, and uh, I, I guess if the government opened up policies to attract further foreign talent that that works out but in terms of central planning probably or ability to execute on long term planning vietnam hopefully i would think i think locals might disagree because <laughs> they're quite uh, um, i don't know sometimes they're they're a bit negative on on, on the government ability to do stuff but, yeah, but, from, but what, from what i see as an outsider but, they, they have that ability i think
3: but but locals disagree it's the same way as uh, as the shop employees in 2017 saying that the company has so many problems in sure. not going the work yeah
0: exactly exactly yeah so so i mean my, my one of my bets is definitely vietnam for both check boxes um, at least local talent, uh, like the instit- institutions where I would hire from in Thailand, definitely yeah. have universities for that too. So now Malaysia, I don't feel like there's this kind of Harvard in Malaysia. I don't know. That's just my take.
1: Well, I think the point that uh, I, actually, I think it's a very fair point, like this this point about like the stability of the country in terms of political landscape and, and long-term planning. And so I think the interesting analogy or the interesting line that we can draw between say Vietnam, Singapore and the PRC is they're all single-party systems, right? We don't have yeah. actual transitions or changes yeah, to government like you would have in, say, Malaysia or Thailand or, or the Philippines. So, yeah, so that actually uh, is is uh, helpful in their ability to to sort of like at least do the planning part. Execution, of course, is always a different question, but at least they have you know the the infrastructure to be able to do that kind of planning. Yep. Yeah.
3: I would say, I mean, I agree with you. Singapore, Indonesia, and Vietnam, and I always have this um, a bit, uh, this belief that Malaysia is a very good test of ground for the region. I agree. Uh, I agree. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it has the cost structure and also solve the problems of emerging markets, but it also has the maturity and international access.
0: I mean, we're we're all based here too, so yeah. <laughs> it says something, right? It I'm, says something.
3: I'm not, but yeah
0: yeah well um, I then, I yeah. Singapore trapped you it, it could have been it could, it, it could uh, Malaysia could get you in the future I mean, who knows
2: isn't your wife Malaysian so technically yes, Malaysia's yes, already but, got you
0: yeah but
3: she's here she's a Singapore as well, so anyway ah,
2: um so is, it's a Trojan horse bro so one thing we sent her w- Trojan horse you know the story of the Trojan horse
3: yes 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 I also know the story yeah, of, yeah. uh, of Helen but anyway so
2: um, yes correct correct your wife is basically Helen of Troy that's, a, that's not a very nice thing to say, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually not, not a nice thing. Wait, what? Maybe I missed the rest of it. Did, did, you, did we watch the same movie? Okay, sorry, John. <laughs> no, okay, okay, okay. 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 Not,
1: to, not to take from John. But Helen <laughs> of Troy was a bit of a harlot. She left her husband to shackle with some other dude, i.e. Paris. <laughs> and that's how the whole Trojan War started.
2: Ah, Fair yes. point. Yes. Fair sounds, point. Just, I take that back, Jagger. Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I was literally talking about the concept of a Trojan horse without con- considering the cheating aspect of it.
3: Fine. Back, back to the point. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think the point about talent um, every every single person I know who has, who's not from Malaysia, but has lived in Malaysia, loved the country. It loved the <laughs> That's people. True, actually, they loved the, yeah. the, the, the ability to, to go around. I mean, they loved the lifestyle. That's a very good and point. They loved the work. Work ethics of uh, most of the people uh, in Kuala Lumpur, at least. So, um, so, but but many of them still choose to live in Singapore because because it just offers them better access to to everything else. So that's something that uh, that that Malaysia probably needs to think about. Um, um, I, I, I I to date I still don't understand the argument why they scraped the, the high speed railway and because some people are arguing that okay that's going to cause a, a brain drain, but I think it's the I think this uh, other way around. I mean, it allows people to to, to live in Kuala Lumpur while still have access to all these resources in Singapore.
0: Yeah.
3: But of course, I mean that goes into deep waters, which uh, yeah, exactly. Which well, well
2: that's,
0: I don't know if we want to get into that. It one. also There's goes into some...
2: it, yeah. No, look I, I think the, uh, that's more like who benefits and who should pay for it. Correct. It's a deeper, it's more technical question, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I won't name names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. 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 Malaysia is great. Everyone. Vote, vote Malaysia. Yeah, I think this
0: was a, a good place to to probably uh, end, guys. Unless you have any final comments. No, I think that was we we're good. good. Yeah. All right, guys. Love you guys. Yes. All right, yes, Love you. You guys. Love you too, Jangan. All right. See you. I'll mm. see you guys soon.
2: Bye bye. Love you, boy. Ciao. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Yeah. Ciao.